text from somebody. And uh, I, one time, I started listening to a baseball game on the radio, a professional of the Cincinnati Reds. I walked down the row and came back, and the game was over. That's how long the cornrows were sometimes. Close to hell, but not totally. So, <laughs> Anyway, hey, uh, uh, I talked about this last week, and I'm just going to put another plug in, and you'll hear more about it in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm going to encourage everybody who's part of Exodus, and even if you're visiting and you're going to go home for the summer, you're a college and you're going to be home for the summer, to go through this study. It's a 12-week study, five days a week, takes about 20 minutes a day. And as Sadie had mentioned, it's kind of a workbook format. And I mentioned last week, some of you haven't done a workbook since fifth grade spelling or whatever. But it's not that kind of workbook. It, it's a kind of the workbook that forces you to engage. You, know, you read a few paragraphs and you have to answer some questions that are not like obvious, like you know, whatever. Um, but it forces you to engage and it really... It really is about, uh, the subtitle of the study is Knowing and Doing the Will of God. So it really is about how do you hear, how do you recognize the voice of God through the Bible, through the wisdom of other godly people? How do you, how do you know wh when God's speaking to you? How do you know what he's saying? And then how do you have the courage and the grace and the willing to adjust your life to do what he's asked you to do? So it's really instrumental in my life 15 years ago. Um, and I'm going to go through it again because it's always good to kind of retool my, my ears to God. What we're going to encourage people to do is go through it from May 30th to August 20th. So start around the week of Memorial Day, so it's kind of a summer, what I'm going to call it a summer spiritual anchor, hoping to arrange maybe some different groups that might meet either weekly or every other week just to check in and say, what are you learning? What's God teaching you? Um, and we'll have the books available starting next week. They're about $12 a piece, I think is what they cost. But for just, to, just to, um, for all of us to kind of help us rethink, what does it really mean to hear God? How do we know um, I think I mentioned this last week, Exodus Church probably wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have started Exodus Church apart from me understanding how God was telling me to start the church 12 years ago, or thir 15 years ago it was, I guess. So anyway, uh, we'll have those next week, but I just encourage you um, to consider that and do that. So, um, Let me pray. We're going to look into God's Word. God, you, you do speak. Um, we don't believe that you just spoke at one time and then shut up and told us to figure out life, but you spoke and you still speak through your word. You always speak consistent with the Bible, um, and you still speak to us. Every single person here, uh, you've given the capability to hear what you're asking us to do. Um, so we want ears to hear, and we want eyes to see uh, what you want us to see what you want us to hear and what you want us to do because we want to be the kind of people that you said we could be and that is full of the life and the power that comes from God that comes from you alone we want to be those kind of people who have souls that are full of the spirit of God um, that we are life-giving to others to our family to our neighbors um, we want to be life-giving full of Jesus people and we ask it on Christ's name amen hey go to this next slide don't say it if you know it but uh what is this puzzle for don't say it out loud if you know it and I'll ask you in a second if you get it. Some of you I know get it because I showed it to, to, to my kids last night and they got it. Raise your hand if you think you get it. Raise your hand if you don't think you get it, which is okay. Okay, those of you who don't get it. Give me about another 10 seconds to see who gets it and who doesn't get it. And there's probably something, there's probably a movie really important that if you haven't seen this movie, you will not get it or you haven't seen any of the 55 episodes of this movie. Um, so who, uh, I'll pick on somebody. I, 
I met Luke last week. Luke's an accountant. Luke, do you get it? You do not get it. Luke, do you have any ideas? Okay, okay. Who gets it? Who wants to say it? Uh, first name? Steve, what is it? Obi-Wan Kenobi. So it's a wand minus the D. Obi-Wan Kenobi. And some of you are thinking, what's Obi-Wan Kenobi? It's a character in Star Wars. Star Wars. So um, some of you got it. Some of you didn't get it. All right, one more thing. This is not a puzzle. It's something different. What's the number of the parking space containing this car? You have the spaces marked there. Don't say yet if you got it, but who, some of you will get it. Some of you will not get it, and that's okay. I'm not, we're not here to embarrass people or compare intellectual capabilities or movie-watching habits. Who, who thinks they get it? Okay, I see a couple hands go up. Uh, who doesn't get it? Which is okay. No shame in not getting it. Sadie, right away. All right. Okay. Again, because some of you get it, some of you don't, and the ones of you who don't get it probably realize there's probably a special way to look at this. It's not... It de- Often when you want to get something or we don't get something, it's because somehow the paradigm of how we're looking at it. I'm going to pick on Luke one more time. Luke, do you get it? Okay. I'm sorry, Luke. <laughs> Luke's an accountant, so I'm sure he's really smart. First name? First name? Savannah? And the number is what? And tell us how you got it. The numbers are upside down. Flip them over. It's 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. So, yeah, somebody's like, oh, my goodness. Because sometimes you don't get it because you weren't looking at it correctly or you were stuck in a certain way of thinking, all right? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase called functional fixedness where you are we're stuck in a certain way of thinking and you can't see things differently. You can't solve the problem, so we don't get it. Um, today, we've do, been, do, been doing a series called Seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been familiar with the Gospel of Mark a lar- large part of my life, but I think in going through this series and studying Mark myself, it, it's amazing how many times the disciples don't get it. And what's amazing to me is these are the people who are the closest friends and allies of Jesus, and they don't get it. Even, we're going to see today, they don't get it even not too long before he goes gets arrested and crucified. They still don't get it. And I'm saying that because if you've ever felt like, I don't get it with Jesus. I don't get what this is all about. I don't get what he means, why Jesus wants me to do this. In one sense, you're in really good company because the disciples didn't get it. And I'm not saying we should be happy with not getting it. But it's interesting, like I've said before, when you read yourself into the story as one of the disciples and realize they sometimes just didn't get it. Instead of reading it, we typically read it as somebody on the outside who knows how it all ends, so we just look at the disciples and say, those dummies, they just didn't get it. But if we were in that story, I'm guessing none of us would have gotten it either. And even right now in your story as a follower of Jesus, there's ways you're not, I'm not, we're not getting it. So I've actually titled this message this, "They they they just don't get it, do we? Because it's not just about them not getting it. It's also sometimes we don't get it with what Jesus is up to. And of course, we're not going to stop with, oh, we don't get it, stop. We're going to figure out what, what do you do when you don't get it? How do you, how do you see things differently? So here's Mark chapter 10. Um, and there, it, as is true with a lot of 
the chapters of Mark, there's just a lot of, Mark includes all these little stories. So in Mark chapter 5, there's like five different stories, five different scenes on the DVD screen, you know, choose the scene from Mark 10. And they all, they seemingly don't go together, but they often do. And again, keep in mind, Mark was writing this gospel. John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. He was a friend and traveling companion of Peter. So a lot of these stories he would have gotten firsthand from Peter over the years. He wrote these initially. It was read by these Christians in Rome who were undergoing some degree of persecution. And they were trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't always applaud us, in a culture that doesn't always agree to us with us. And they were trying to understand how to get it. Because again, there's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in all of our lives to switch over to that. So we'll go to the five different vignettes. First one is this, the Pharisees don't get it. Mark chapter 10, and I'll read this part. Here's, uh, here's how the chapter starts off. So this is now, if you, if you think about the life of Jesus and his ministry, the first part of his life took almost, almost exclusively place up in the northern part of Israel, which is called the Galilee region. It's where he was born. A lot of his miracles take place on the Sea of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. That's the northern part of Israel then and is now, of course, still. The latter part of his life and ministry takes place down in the southern part of Israel, which is Jerusalem, Judea region, and that area. Um, so this particular chapter is the transition of Jesus heading down toward Jerusalem, which would be his final uh, trip there in terms of being arrested, tortured, uh, crucified, and rising again. So the first part of the Gospel of Mark, we've been almost exclusively up in the Galilee region. He does the miracles, all these signs. Actually, in this chapter, it's his last, uh, I think it's his last miracle that shows up in the Gospel of Mark. And then he heads into Jerusalem, and then the confrontation gets really intense with the Pharisees. He's not in Jerusalem yet, but he's heading down that way. So here's what the Pharisees start off with. It says, uh, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. Jesus answered them with the question, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied, which is true. In Deuteronomy 24, uh, Moses makes this um, uh, a concession for divorce. He permitted it. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard heart. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains my man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So the Pharisees said, and part of the reason people think the Pharisees were asking Jesus this question, as you might remember earlier in the book of Mark, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod because Herod had, uh, there was some divorce involved where Herod actually was living with his brother's wife, and so the, with the thought is the Pharisees may be trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would get Herod to do to Jesus what Herod did to John the Baptist, which was to kill him. So the Pharisees really weren't honestly asking, but they were trying to trap. And then it says later after this encounter, Jesus was alone with the disciples and he brought up the subject again. They brought up the subject again. The disciples brought it up. And Jesus told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Here's what the Pharisees didn't get. Yes, this is about divorce and remarriage, and there's, that's a whole, that's books written about that. But essentially the Pharisees, what they were all about was 
keeping the rules, and I can keep the rules, and I have rights to do certain things, and as long as I'm keeping the rules, and I have, when doing what I have a right to do, I'm probably okay with God. When in reality, <laughs> in that day, a man could divorce his wife simply, there, there's a Hebrew word involved, but I don't want to go into that, but the, they, simply for irritating the husband. If you're irritated at your wife, you could divorce her. If she burned dinner, literally, that was one of the provisions, if she burned the dinner, you could divorce her because it irritated you. If she danced in public, you could divorce her because it irritates you. Maybe it was the way she danced, I don't know. There were all kinds of provisions, and so it was a very male, beneficial kind of system where if a man just got irritated with his wife or really just got tired of his wife, which he would have then been irritated with her, he could divorce her, and uh, then they said, well, so why did Moses say it was okay? Well, Moses said, no, when you divorce her, you need to give her a written verification of divorce, because otherwise what would happen then in those days in those cultures, if a woman was divorced and couldn't prove it, then she was totally judged and condemned and seen as like a, a whore or a hooker. So Moses was really given a provision to protect the women who were divorced so they could prove, no, I really am divorced. My husband divorced me, which gave them a little bit of a social help. Not a social advantage, but a help. And then Jesus turns around and says to the disciples, hey, just, you know, you know if a man leaves his wife and has, sleeps with another one, he's committing adultery. And he says, and vice versa is true. So he's kind of even in the playing field. But again, the point is, the disciples were all about rule keeping. And if I have a right to do this, I can do it, and I'm still going to be good with God. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about rules. It's not even about what you have a right to do and not do. It's really about preserving a whole relational, righteous, relational righteousness with other people. Because, again, the Pharisees did not define their righteousness as a rule-keeping righteousness. Or, I have a right to do this. I have a right to keep my money. I have a right to do whatever you feel like you have a right to do, whether it's in your marriage, toward other people, with your money, with your time. Yes, you have a right to do with those things as you want to do, but righteousness uh, is a relational thing. So you may have a right to do something, but the relational wholeness and goodness of that would tell you you do something maybe for the other person, giving up your rights for them. So that the Pharisees didn't get it. Jesus, they thought Christianity or following, it wasn't Christians then, that following God was about rule-keeping, and knowing what your rights are and living that way. And Jesus said, no, it's more about relationships and guarding and protecting relationships. So the Pharisees didn't get it. That was the first part. Next story. This one the disciples don't get it. Here's what happened in the next part of the chapter. It said some parents brought their little children, we have some little children and babies, to Jesus because they wanted him to touch them and bless them. The, the, the disciples shooed them away. The Bible actually says the disciples scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. Right, so just right there, all these mothers, dads, or whatever, bringing little babies and small children to Jesus because they want to touch them, touch their kids, and bless them. And it says the disciples, the disciples scolded the parents. Um, so without even knowing what happens next, you might guess how Jesus would have responded. I mean, he, he wasn't grateful for what they did actually says when jesus saw what was, what was happening he was angry at the disciples because again this is this is weeks before he gets arrested they've been with him for at least two 
plus years. You think they would understand it by now, but for some reason, they felt like this was a bother to Jesus. Oh, these are small children. They're a bother to Jesus. And they scolded the parents. I'm, I'm just trying to think what Peter or John or James was thinking when they're telling these parents, no, don't do that. Don't, you're bothering him. And then I thought, okay, if we put ourselves in the story, how do we, do we, how do we keep people from bothering Jesus with what we think are trivial things? Or are there times we don't bother Jesus with what we think are trivial things? And Jesus actually says, he says, you know, you don't understand because unless you become like one of these children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he's not saying you can't get into heaven after that. What he's saying is, unless you understand the incredibly refreshing, raw trust of children, you won't understand what it means to trust God. Because whether we admit it or not, the older we get, the, the more cynical we come about trusting people. I mean, when my, when my kids were little, I could stand in the pool and I could say, jump in. This is when they couldn't swim or learning how to swim jump in and do this and they had the childlike trust to do that they would jump in because if i didn't catch them they go down i'm guessing now as adults if i said that jump in one i wouldn't do it because they'd hurt me but two we don't it, it, we've been burned a lot of times in relationships so it's harder for us to trust people when they ask us to to jump in so the childlike trust is what Jesus is getting to the disciples. Now, they don't get that. Because he's saying, no, you, you need, unless you're just like one of these kids, he wasn't saying like one of the children in terms of being irresponsible or whatever, but in terms of the, just the bold, refreshing trust. Vulnerability, trusting. I mean, my, when my kids were little, they, didn't, they weren't anxious about where, where the next meal was coming from. They trusted mom and dad to take care of that. But, you know, as adults, we tend to get anxious not about our next meal, but we get anxious about our bank accounts. We get anxious about this. We get anxious about that. Instead of learning that, no, I can trust that my Heavenly Father will take care of me because He takes care of the sparrows. He takes care of birds. So I don't need to worry about those things. But we do. And so Jesus was getting, making that point. Because they didn't get it. They didn't get it that at the, at the baseline following Jesus is about that kind of trust that He will take care of every one of our needs. Next story. The disciples uh, don't get it again, and neither does a rich young man. Here's the story here. It says the man came to Jesus, and this is this point in the story, we're not told that he's rich. We find out later. And he says to Jesus, uh, teacher, rabbi, I mean, very respectful, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, you know, obey the commandments. Don't steal, don't murder, honor your father and mother that was the right answer and then the man says to jesus well i've done all those since i was a little boy i've obeyed i've i've i've, I've lived carefully by all the moral teachings of my religion i've done them all since i was a boy so you would think okay that's good that's a really good check plus in this guy's favor but then jesus says well but one thing you lack you need to go sell all you have give it to the poor, and then follow me, and then you'll have eternal life. And it says the man, the, in, the, in the text it says the man's face dropped, like he, you could tell, like boom, oh, 
because he had great, says because he had great wealth. So we first might think, okay, this must be about him not getting it. But then it said the disciples, and so he walks away, and the disciples obviously are confused. And then it says later Jesus says to them, this is where this phrase comes from, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to come into the kingdom of heaven. So the animal was the largest animal they could perceive, and they knew what the eye of a needle was in a small. And then disciples obviously don't get it because their response is, who then can be saved? I mean, it says they were astounded. Who, who then can be saved? Because in that culture, if you were wealthy, especially in the Jewish culture, if you were wealthy, it was seen as a sign of blessing from God. That's a really good thing. And they're confused. They're like, well, who can be saved then? Like, and Jesus was not teaching that every disciple should give away everything. What he was teaching was, if there's any condition of your following Jesus, if there's anything you won't let go of if Jesus wanted it, then that's not the kind of faith he's looking for. So he may be asking you, it may have to do with money, it may have to do with the future plan, it may have to do with a relationship. What in your life, if Jesus said, I want you to give that up, what in your life would be hardest for you to say yes to Jesus for? That's probably where there's some kind of potential idolatry going on. We all have those kind of issues. What, what is it? What it would, but the disciples, they, they, they're like, who can be saved? And then Jesus said, which was refreshing for all of us, he says, no, with, with man, it's not possible. No, we, none of you can figure out faith on your own. And he says, but with God, all things are possible. Nothing's impossible with God. So you, th you may think, I and mean, if you had all this wealth and Jesus was saying to you, give it all away, Obviously, you'd have all these internal stirrings. Well, I, how could I do that? I, I got to keep this. I got to do this. But if we're willing to follow Jesus, he says all things are possible, and God will do whatever he needs to do in your heart and around your life to make sure that you are full of the kind of joy in life he promised you. So the but disciples, they're like, who, who can be saved? We don't get it. We don't understand it. Um, and then Jesus says, no, it's, it's, it's hard, but you can't do it on your own. You need to let me teach you how to let go of those things in your life that you're holding on to. Because again, it's, it may not be money that Jesus is talking to you about. It may not be great wealth you have, but it might be a relationship, future plan. It may be some money, I don't know. There may be something that you feel like God's asking you to let go of. Um, and how do you respond? You say, well, I'm doing all the right, I'm behaving right, I'm obeying all the commandments. The nature of following Jesus is not simply about being an obedient person. It's about doing what Jesus asked you. Like I said before, he's the king. And whatever the king asks you to do is what you do. So the disciples didn't get it. The rich young man didn't get it, but the, the lesson seemed to be for the disciples. Because they're like, what are you talking about? Who can be saved then, Jesus? So then, next one. The disciples don't get it. This is like, how many times don't they get it in this chapter? And this is the one that seems most appalling. Jesus actually says to the disciples, because they're now on their way to Jerusalem. So they're on their way to Jerusalem, which will be kind of the last days of Jesus. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Uh, the disciples were filled with awe because people were following and they were overwhelmed. Talk, taking the 12 di disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. He had told them some of these things before. He says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Then they will sentence him to die, hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus is just telling the disciples, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, hand me over to the Romans, I'm going to be flogged, spit on, mocked, and crucified. Then I'll rise from the dead. Now, if you're the disciples, and, and I'm one of you, and Jesus just said that to us, you would think, you would think, there'd be at least somewhat of a heavy, serious tone, like, oh my goodness, wow, that's going to be really... So that's kind of what he just said to them. And this is kind of amazing, but again, I'm not... It's just like we can be. And it says, then James and John came over and spoke to Jesus. So this seems to be like right after. He just told them, this is what's happening, what's going to happen, flogged, spit upon, mocked, killed. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. So Jesus has told them, this is what's going to be happening in Jerusalem soon. It's going to be awful. I'm going to raise again from the dead, but it's going to be awful. So James and John, teacher, we have a favor to ask you. And he's like, what do you want? They say this, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on the right and one on the left. And it's like, I mean, if I'm Jesus, which I'm not, but if I was, I'd be like, did you just hear what I was just talking about? I was just talking about the reality of suffering and persecution for me, which means the reality of that for you. And you're asking, and they come to Jesus and say, we want right-hand throne, left-hand throne. Because they were still thinking Jesus was coming to kick out the Romans. He was coming to establish a political kingship. Yeah, 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 we hear all that stuff about dying, spitting, whatever, Jesus. We heard all that stuff, but we're thinking king. We're thinking you're going to be like in power. And I, James and John, these brothers, I want right hand, I want left hand. They don't, they're thinking it's really about influence and power. And it's almost as if when Jesus talks about suffering or being spit on or mocked, it's almost like they don't hear that part. And if you are like me when I read the Gospels or the Book of Acts, I don't really want to hear those parts about people getting persecuted or martyred or mistreated. We love the resurrection. We love the power of Jesus. We love the power and the miracles in the Book of Acts. But when you read those and these acts of power, these miracles, these glorious things happening, healings. But then you read in there, too, there's floggings, and people are persecuted, and people die. Jesus is flogged, he's spit upon and mocked. It's like, we don't, we don't know how those things go together. And that's what the disciples weren't getting. And so Jesus says to them, you, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? I must be baptized with. In other words, do you understand the kind of suffering and, and challenge this is going to be for you, to be the kind of person that God wants you to be? And it says, oh, yes, they replied, we are able. And, you, and again, if now we can look from hindsight. You look at them, and they're like, what are they thinking? But again, I wonder to what degree we may have the same. We, we see what our future, want, we want our future to be like, and we think, and we believe and understand that Jesus wants us to be joyful and peaceful and full of life, which is true. Um, but we don't necessarily, we think for some reason, at least I do, I, I think he should exempt me from any 
potholes or obstacles along the way. But Jesus doesn't exempt any of us who follow him seriously. And it's not that Jesus wants us to suffer or have obstacles, but he's saying, and he communicates this over and over in the Gospels, it's the only way to have your soul be full of the life of God. And the disciples don't get it. Frankly, I don't get it all the time with that. Because we, we are prone, obviously, we want to avoid suffering. I don't want to drive down a street that has potholes. I'll avoid that. I don't want to drive down a street with the bridges. I don't want to avoid that. And we think, I think, well, okay, God, you need to remove those obstacles in my life. And yes, he can and does at times. But other times he knows it's an essential part of how we grow to be the kind of people he wants us to be. But the disciples on this one, they missed it big time. And Jesus actually says to them, you don't understand. He says the Gentiles, the rulers, the Romans, when they have authority, they lord it over people. They, they use their authority to get their way and to manipulate people. And then he says to them, but it's not so with you. It's not to be true with you. He said, if you want to be great in this world, you need to be the servant and slave of all. And they're probably thinking, what? We, if you want to be great in this world, you need to be the least. And maybe they thought about the Old Testament where the Messiah is talking about the suffering servant. But they're not putting that together. And maybe when it came down the next few weeks when Jesus actually washes their feet, at the Last Supper, which was only something a servant would do, and they were appalled that he was doing that for them. And again, I'll go straight into your life and my life. Are there ways, are there people in your life that you're kind of trying to figure out where you stand with them? Maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's parents, maybe it's a working relationship, and maybe, maybe what Jesus is saying to you, if you want to be lead in that environment, serve. You don't assert your authority. You don't assert your position of power. If you want to have the most influence in the way that Jesus would want to influence, find a way to serve that person. Find a way to uh, do something on their well-being that is something that you have to let go of your rights to do. But it's over and over Jesus has given that lesson. And this is one of the ones he just says it's gonna, it has to be different with you. So, 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 so far we've had the Pharisees don't get it. Disciples don't get it. Disciples don't get it. Disciples don't get it. And I mentioned this last week because the last part of chapter 10 is Bartimaeus. We mentioned Bartimaeus last week. But again, I don't, I don't, have, I don't assume to know um, exactly how God told Mark to write the stories down in these kind of order. But I think it's more than just coincidental that Bartimaeus shows up at the end of this chapter. Because up to this point, the only people that even got close to getting it may have been the parents and the little kids who brought the kids to Jesus. Other than that, the Pharisees totally were missing it, and they were just trying to, they, they were hard-hearted. The disciples just missed over and over again what it meant to follow Jesus. They thought it was all about influence and power and control. And but then enter into the scene, and I'm going to focus on a different part of this with Bartimaeus, blind man. Bartimaeus, Jesus was going to, uh, heading down south, going through Jericho, which is on the way down to Jerusalem. And it says he walks into walking in Jerusalem, or Jericho, with a loud throng around him, and from the distance they hear this blind man, Bartimaeus, um, yelling out at the top of his lungs, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And it says the people around him, not the disciples in this case, they weren't scolding him. The people around him scolded Bartimaeus and they said, be quiet, you're bothering him. Same kind of theme there. And it says Bartimaeus, blind man in those days, if you were blind, you were basically homeless and poor and destined to beg. And it says he yelled all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, because Bartimaeus knew he had a condition that would not change unless the supernatural power of God through Jesus did something in his life. So the cry of Lord, have mercy on me is the cry of any one of us who are crying out to God to change something in us that we know cannot and will not change apart from supernatural intervention. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's not a matter of being a gooder person, better person, gooder person. I just, I knew I was saying good. I, was, I knew I was butchering grammar there. So, you know, it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of he knew that if I want to have the kind of life that I know I want to have, Jesus has to do something for me. That's the cry of Lord have mercy. And it's interesting, that prayer, um, I read this somewhere years ago, that prayer has put, been put into song more than anything else in the Bible. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. It shows up in, whether it's a Catholic mass or Episcopal or Orthodox church or all, but it's that prayer of Lord have mercy. So the conclusion of the matter is simply that, of course, Jesus then goes to him, heals him. The conclusion of the matter of, is this. There's things in my life, there's things in your life as you relate to how to follow Jesus. That you would, if you're honest, you'd say, I don't get it. I don't know what Jesus is doing. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why this has to be a part of this. I don't, I don't. I think, and you might say then, which I have often asked when a doctor tells me something's wrong, my next question is, what do I do about it? I don't, you, know, you tell me I have a bad this or a bad that or my knee's bad, my elbow's bad. What do I do? What are my options? And it seems like what we tend to do is, okay, if I don't get it, if I don't get what Jesus is saying or doing, I don't understand it, we usually go to one of two options. One is, I got to try harder because I must be blowing it. I must be stupid. I must not have faith. And it kind of goes into some self-condemnation. Or we go into, well, God isn't, God's holding out on me or something, and I don't. So we either question God or condemn ourselves because we're not sure why we're not getting it when we think everybody else around us is getting it, and uh, the surprise is most of us don't. But it seems like what Jesus is putting out there was put up, and uh, what I would put in from Mark chapter 10 is maybe the best prayer of any of us could have towards Jesus is simply, Lord, have mercy on me. Do in me what I know I can't do by willpower or effort or trying harder. Do in me and he bring healing to my soul. Bring healing to that part. Of, help me understand what you're doing in my life. Help me understand where suffering and pain or persecution or servanthood or whatever. Help me understand where those fall in. But I, I, I need your mercy. I need you to do something in me that I cannot do on my own. And it seems as if Bartimaeus is the only person, like I said, apart from maybe the kids and their parents, who gets it in chapter 10. I mean, he gets Jesus. Because what he gets is the proper posture of us 
word following Jesus is simply one of someone who's saying to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. I want to understand. Do what you need to do in my life to help me understand, to help me to be transformed to the kind of person who's full of joy, peace, love, life, forgiveness. I want to be that kind of person. Lord, have mercy. And I'm, and I'm doing this because I think the Lord, have mercy prayer has to be unconditional and, and has to be without direction. So I don't say, Lord, have mercy. Please do this for me. Please do this in my life here. I've already got it figured out, Jesus. Here's the plan. Have mercy and implement my plan. Because when you say, Lord, have mercy, you're essentially leaving it up to him to set an agenda of how he wants to bring about that transformation in life. And you're essentially saying to him, there are no conditions that I'm going to give you. I'm not going to, like the, the rich man, well, I can't give away this money. I can't do that. No, Lord, have mercy is simply saying, I will do whatever you ask me to do for you to do in me what I know I really want, and that is be full of the spirit of Jesus. So uh, close your eyes with me. And um, I'm just going to ask you to do this. I'm going to, you know what issue in your life or you know where you wish you could see Jesus at work. You even know maybe where you might be confused with what Jesus is doing. Or you may feel like I feel at times just kind of ignorant, like I don't get it. Maybe it's some money issue, maybe it's a job issue, a career issue, a future issue, marriage issue, you with your children, your children with parents. I don't know what the issue is, but my guess is there's some issue where you would say, I don't, I don't really get what he's doing. Why don't you identify that? And then in a second, I'm just going to count to three, and only loud enough for you to hear yourself, I simply want you to pray, Lord, have mercy. All right? Um, and if you can't, if you, if I'm not trying to force everyone to participate in that, and if you choose not to, nobody's going to know you're not praying. But for those of us who want to look to Jesus for that kind of, uh, we want to implore on him to work in our lives in the same way that Bartimaeus is. Just, uh, again, I'll say one, two, three, and I just want you to whisper to yourself loud enough that you can hear, Lord, have mercy, all right? So on the count of three, one, two, three. Lord, have mercy on people here this morning who may be frustrated with what's going on in their financial life. And would you do work in their hearts? Lord, have mercy on those this morning who would say they feel confused or unsure about what you're doing in their relational world. Lord, have mercy and bring hope and healing to them. Bring, bring them direction and clarity. Lord, have mercy on those who are anxious about their future. Um, would they trust you every step of the way, not asking you for a blueprint, but trusting, trusting, and trusting. Lord, have mercy on those here this morning um, that have habits that they want to stop and break, but they can't seem to get there. Would you love them through change would you remind them of your forgiveness but would you also give them the power of your Holy Spirit by your mercy change so Lord we want to have the same spirit that Bartimaeus had and crying out to you to do in us what we know we can't do and so we 
cry out to you for mercy in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, in our bank accounts, and in our inner worlds. Uh, we need your mercy. We need your power at work in our lives. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we finished at Exodus with uh, communion, and we do it every week. And we do it because uh, it's, it's just a visual, symbolic reminder that Jesus actually tells us to remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. So uh, he said, this bread and this cup are should remind you of me, remind us of 